Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, the classic story from Edna Ferber that inspired one of the greatest American musicals. This is the eighth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, artist, television, and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. You can find the entire series online at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Edna Ferber's Showboat. Chapter 6 It was the theatre, perhaps, as the theatre was meant to be. A place in which one saw one's dreams come true. A place in which one could live a vicarious life of splendour and achievement, winning in love, foiling the evildoer. A place in which one could weep unashamed, laugh aloud, give way to emotions long pent up. When the show was over, and they had clambered up the steep bank, and the music of the band had ceased, and there was left only the dying glow of the kerosene flares, you saw them stumble a little and blink dazedly, like one rudely awakened to reality from a lovely dream. By eleven, the torches had been gathered in. The showboat lights were dimmed. Troopers as they were, no member of the Cotton Blossom Company could go meekly off to sleep once the workday was over. They still were at high tension. So they discussed for the thousandth time the performance that they had given a thousand times. They dissected the audience. Well, they were sitting on their hands tonight, all right. Seemed they would never warm up. I got a big laugh on that new business with the pillow. Did you notice? <laughs> notice? Yeah, and the next time you introduce any new business, you got a right to leave me know beforehand. I went right up. If Schultze hadn't thrown me my line, where'd I been? I, I never thought of that till that minute, so help me. I just noticed the pillow on the sofa, and that minute it came to me, it'd be a good piece of business to, to grab it up like it was a baby in my arms. I didn't expect any such laugh as I got on it. I didn't go to throw you off. From Schultze in the role of director. Next time you get one of those inspirations, you try it out at rehearsal first. Oh, God, there was a million babies tonight. Cap, I guess you must have threw a little something extra into your spiel about come and bring the children. They sure took you seriously and brought them all right. I'd just soon play for an orphan asylum and be done with it. Julie was cooking a pot of coffee over a little spirit lamp. They use the stage as a common gathering place. Bare of scenery now, in readiness for next night's set, it was their living room. Stark and shadowy as it was, there was about it an air of coziness, of domesticity. Mrs. Means, ponderous in dressing gown and slippers, was heating some oily mess for use in the nightly ministrations on her frail little husband's delicate chest. Usually Andy, Parthy, Ellie, and Schultze, as the oat mooned, together with the occasional addition of the Molly Abel's captain and pilot, supped together at a table below stage in the dining room, where Joe and Queenie had set out a cold collation, cheese, ham, bread, a pie left from dinner. Parthy cooked the coffee on the kerosene stove. On stage, the women of the company hung their costumes carefully away in the tiny cubicles provided for such purpose, just outside the dressing room doors. The men smoked a sedative pipe. The lights of the little town on the riverbank had long been extinguished. Even the saloons on the waterfront showed only an occasional glow. Sometimes George at the piano tried out a new song for Ellie or Schultze or Ralph in preparation for tomorrow night's concert. The tinkle of the piano, the sound of the singer's voice, drifted across the river. Up in the little town in a drab cottage near the waterfront, a restless soul would turn in his sleep and start up at the sound and listen between waking and sleeping wondering about these strange people singing on their boat at midnight, envying them their fantastic vagabond life. A peaceful enough existence in its routine, yet a curiously crowded and colorful one for a child. She saw town after town, whose waterfront street was a solid block of saloons, one next the other, open day and night. 
Her childhood impressions were formed of stories, happenings, accidents, events born of the rivers. Towns and people came to be associated in her mind with this or that bizarre bit of river life. The junction of the Ohio and Big Sandy Rivers always was remembered by Magnolia as the place where the Black Diamond Saloon was opened on the day the Cotton Blossom played Catlisburg. Catlisburg, typical waterfront town of the times, was like a knot that drew together the two rivers. Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky met just there. And at the junction of the rivers, there was open with high and appropriate ceremonies the Black Diamond Saloon, owned by those picturesque two, Big Wayne Dameron and Little Wayne Dameron. From the deck of the Cotton Blossom, Magnolia saw the crowd waiting for the opening of the Black Diamond doors. Free drinks, free lunch, Rivertown hospitality. And then... Big Wayne opened the doors, and the crowd surged back while their giant host, holding the key aloft in his hand, walked down to the riverbank, held the key high for a moment, then hurled it far into the yellow waters of the Big Sandy. The Black Diamond Saloon was open for business. The shifting, colorful life of the rivers unfolded before her ambient eyes. She saw and learned and remembered rough sights, brutal sights, sights of beauty and color, deeds of bravery, dirty deeds. Through the wheatlands, the corn country, the fruit belt, the cotton, the timber region, the river life flowed and changed like the river itself. Shanty boats. Bumboats, side-wheelers, stern-wheelers, fussy packets, self-important. Races ending often in death and disaster. Coal barges. A fleet of rafts, log-laden. The timber rafts drifting down to Louisville were steered with great sweeps. As they swept down the Ohio, the timbermen sang their shanty, their great shoulders and strong muscular torsos bending, straightening to the rhythm of the rowing song. Magnolia had learned the words from Doc, and when she espied the oarsmen from the deck of the Cotton Blossom, she joined in the song and rocked with their motion out of sheer dramatic love of it. The river is up, the channel is deep, the wind blows steady and strong. Odina's got the whole cake on, so row your boat along. Down the river, down the river, down the Ohio. Down the river, down the river, down the Ohio. Three tremendous pulls accompanied those last three long-drawn syllables. Magnolia found it most invigorating. Doc had told her, too, that the Ohio had got its name from the time when the Indians, standing on one shore and wishing to cross to the other, would cup their hands and send out the call to the opposite bank, loud and high and clear, Oh, hey, oh! Do you think it's true? Magnolia would say for Mrs. Hawks had got into the way of calling Doc's stories stuff and nonsense. All those tales, it would seem, to which Magnolia most thrilled, turned out, according to Parthy, to be stuff and nonsense. So then, do you think it's true? she would demand fearfully. Think it? Why, sure, I know it's true. Sure as shootin'. It was noteworthy and characteristic of Magnolia that she liked best the rampant rivers. The Illinois, which had possessed such fascination for Tonti, for Joliet, for Marquette, for countless coureurs de bois who had frequented this trail to the southwest, left her cold. Its clear water, its gentle current, its fretless channel, its green hillsides, its tidy, bordering grain fields, bored her. From Doc and from her father, she learned a haphazard and picturesque chronicle of its history and that of like rivers, a tale of voyageurs and trappers, of flatboat and keelboatmen, of rafters on the great logging days, of shanty boaters, water gypsies, steamboats. She listened and remembered, but was unmoved. When the cotton blossom floated down the tranquil bosom of the Illinois, Magnolia read a book. 
she drank its limpid waters and missed the mud tang to be found in a draft of the Mississippi. If I was going to be a river, she announced, I wouldn't want to be the Illinois or like those. I'd want to be the Mississippi. How's that? asked Captain Andy. Because the Illinois, it's always the same. But the Mississippi is always different. It's like a person that you never know what they're going to do next, and that makes them interesting. Doc was oftenest her Cicerone and playmate ashore. His knowledge of the countryside, the rivers, the dwellers along the shore and in the back country was almost godlike in its omniscience. At his tongue's end were tales of buccaneers, of pirates, of adventurers. He told her of the bloodthirsty and rapacious Merle, who, not content with robbing and killing his victims, ripped them open, disemboweled them, and threw them into the river. Oh, my! Magnolia would exclaim inadequately and peer with some distaste into the water rushing past the boat's flat sides. How did he look? Like Steve when he plays Legree? Oh, not by a jugful, he didn't. Dressed up like a parson and used to travel from town to town giving sermons. He had a slick tongue, and while the congregation inside was all stirred up getting their souls saved, Merle's gang outside would steal their horses. Stories of slaves stolen, sold, restolen, resold, and murdered. Merle's attempted capture of New Orleans by rousing the blacks to insurrection against the whites. Tales of Crenshaw, the vulture, of Mason, terror of the Natchez Road. On excursions ashore, Doc showed her pirates' caves, abandoned graveyards, ancient robber retreats along the riverbanks or in the woods. They visited Sam Gritty's soap kettle, a great iron pot half-hidden in a rocky, unused field in which Gritty used to cache his stolen plunder. She never again saw an old soap kettle sitting plumply in some southern kitchen doorway, its sides covered with a handsome black velvet coat of soot, that she did not shiver deliciously. Strong fare for a child, at an age when other little girls were reading the Dotty Dimple series and little broody books. Doc enjoyed these sanguinary chronicles in the telling as much as Magnolia in the listening. His lined and leathery face would take on the changing expression suitable to the tenor of the tale. Cunning, cruelty, greed chased each other across his mobile countenance. Doc had been a showboat actor himself at some time back in his kaleidoscopic career. So, together, he and Magnolia and his ancient barrel-bellied black-and-white terrier Catchem roamed the woods and towns and hills and fields and churchyards from Cairo to the Gulf. Sometimes, in the spring, she went with Julie, the indolent. Ellie almost never walked and often did not leave the cotton blossom for days together. Ellie was extremely neat and fastidious about her person— she was forever heating kettles and pans of water for bathing, for washing stockings and handkerchiefs. She had a knack with the needle and could devise a quite plausible third-act ball gown out of a length of satin, some limp tulle, and a yard or two of tinsel. She never read. Her industry irked Julie as Julie's indolence irritated her. Ellie was something of a shrew. Chelsea had learned to his sorrow that your blue-eyed blondes are not always doves. Oh, pity's sake, Julie, how can you sit there doing nothing, staring out at that everlasting river's more than I can see? I should think you'd go plumb crazy. What would you have me do? Oh, do? Well, mend the hole in your stocking, for one thing. I should say as much, Mrs. Hawkes would agree, if she chanced to be present. She had no love for Ellie, but her own passion for industry and order could not but cause her to approve a like trait in another. Julie would glance down disinterestedly at her long, slim foot in its shabby shoe. Is there a hole in my stocking? You know perfectly well there is, Julie Dozier. You must have seen it the size of a half dollar when you put it on this morning. It was there yesterday, same's today. Julie smiled charmingly. 
I know. I declare to goodness, I hoped it wouldn't be. When I woke up this morning, I thought maybe the good fairies would have darned it up neat's a pin while I slept. Julie's voice was as indolent as Julie herself. She spoke with a southern drawl. Her eye was, ah, I declare, I declare to goodness, or approximately that. Magnolia would smile in appreciation of Julie's gentle raillery. She adored Julie. She thought Ellie, with her fair skin and china blue eyes, as beautiful as a princess in a fairy tale, as was natural in a child of her sallow coloring and straight black hair. But the two were antipathetic. Ellie, in ill-tempered moments, had been known to speak of Magnolia as that brat, though her vanity was fed by the child's admiration of her beauty. But she never allowed her to dress up in her discarded stage finery, as Julie often did. Ellie openly considered herself a gifted actress, whose talent and beauty were, thanks to her shiftless husband, pearls cast before the river town swinery. Pretty though she was, she found small favor in the eyes of men of the company and crew. Strangely enough, it was Julie who drew them, quite without intent on her part. There was something about her life-scarred face, her mournful eyes, her languor, her effortlessness, her very carelessness of dress that seemed to fascinate and hold them. Steve's jealousy of her was notorious. It was common boat talk, too, that Pete, the engineer of the Molly Abel, who played the bull drum in the band, was openly enamored of her, and had tried to steal her from Steve. He followed Julie into town if she so much as stepped ashore. He was found lurking in corners of the cotton blossom decks, loitering about the stage where he had no business to be. He even sent her presents of imitation jewelry and gaudy handkerchiefs and workboxes, which she promptly presented to Queenie, first urging that mass of ebon royalty to bedeck herself with her new gifts when dishing up the dinner. In that close community, the news of the disposal of these favors soon reached Pete's sooty ears. There had even been a brawl between Steve and Pete, one of those sudden, tempestuous battles, animal-like in its fierceness and brutality. An oath in the darkness, voices low, ominous, the thud of feet, the impact of bone against flesh, deep, sob-like breathing, a high, weird cry of pain, terror, rage. Pete was overboard and floundering in the swift current of the Mississippi. Powerful swimmer though he was, they had some trouble in fishing him out. It was well that the cotton blossom and the Molly Abel were lying at anchor. Bruised and dripping, Pete had repaired to the engine room to dry and to nurse his wounds, swearing in terms ridiculously like those frequently heard in the second act of a cotton blossom play that he would get his revenge on the two of them. He had never, since then, openly molested Julie but his threats, mutterings, and innuendos continued. Steve had forbidden his wife to leave the show boat unaccompanied. So it was that when spring came round, and the dogwood, gleaming white among the black trunks of the pines and firs, was like a bride and her shining attendants in a great cathedral, Julie would tie one of her floppy, careless hats under her chin, and, together with Magnolia, range the forests for wildflowers. They would wander inland until they found trees other than the willows, the live oaks, and the elms that line the riverbanks. They would come upon wild honeysuckle, opalescent pink. In autumn, they went nutting, returning with sackfuls of hickory and hazelnuts, anything but the black walnut, which any showboat dweller knows will cause a storm if brought aboard. Sometimes, they experienced the shock of gay surprise that follows the sudden sight of gentian, a flash of that rarest of flower colors, blue, almost poignant in its beauty. It always made Magnolia catch her breath a little. 
Julie's flounces trailing in the dust, the two would start out sedately enough, though to the accompaniment of a chorus of admonition and criticism. From Mrs. Hogg's, "'Now keep your hat pulled down over your eyes so as you won't get all sunburned, Magnolia. Black enough as tis. Don't run and get all overheated. And don't eat any berries or anything you find in the woods now. Back by four o'clock, the latest. Poison ivy. Snakes.' Lost. Gypsies. From Ellie, trimming her rosy nails in the cool shade of the front deck. Julie, your placket's gaping. And tuck your hair in. No, there, on the side. So they made their way up the bank, across the little town, and into the woods. Once out of sight of the boat, the two turned and looked back. Then, without a word, each would snatch her hat from her head, and they would look at each other, and Julie would smile her wide, slow smile, and Magnolia's dark, plain, pointed little face would flash into sudden beauty. From some part of her person, where it doubtless was needed, Julie would extract a pin, and with it fasten up the tail of her skirt. Having thus hoisted the red flag of rebellion, they would plunge into the woods to emerge hot, sticky, bramble-torn, stained, flower-laden, and light. They met Parthy's upbraidings and Steve's reproaches with cheerful unconcern. Often Magnolia went to town with her father, or drove with him or Doc into the back country. Andy did much of the marketing for the boat's food, frequently hampered, supplemented, or interfered with by Parthy's less open-handed methods. He loved good food, considered it important to happiness, liked to order it and talk about it, was himself an excellent cook, like most boatmen, and had been known to spend a pleasant half-hour reading the cookbook. The butchers, grocers, and general storekeepers of the river towns knew Andy, understood his fussy ways, liked him. He bought shrewdly but generously, without haggling, and often presented a store acquaintance of long standing with a pair of tickets for the night's performance. When he and Magnolia had time to range the countryside in a livery rig, Andy would select the smartest and most glittering buggy and the liveliest nag to be had. Being a poor driver and jerky, with no knowledge of a horse's nerves and mouth, the ride was likely to be exhilarating to the point of danger. The animal always was returned to the stable in a lather, the vehicle spattered with mudflakes to the hood. Certainly, it was due to Andy, more than Parthy, that the Cotton Blossom was reputed the best-fed showboat on the rivers. He was always bringing home, in triumph, a great juicy ham, a side of beef. He liked to forage the season's first and best. A bushel of downy peaches, fresh-picked, watermelons, little honey-sweet seckle pears, a dozen plump broilers, new corn, a great yellow cheese, ripe for cutting. He would plump his purchases down on the kitchen table while Queenie surveyed his booty, hands on ample hips. She never resented his suggestions, though Parthy's offended her. Capering, Andy would poke a forefinger into a pullet's fat sides. Rub him over with a little garlic, Queenie, to flavor him up. Plenty of butter and strips of bacon. Cover him over till they're tender, and then give him a quick brown the last twenty minutes. Queenie, knowing all this, still did not resent his direction. That shiftless no-count Joe knew about cooking like you do, Captain Andy. I'd get to rest my feet now and again. I sure would. Magnolia liked to loiter in the big, low-raftered kitchen. It was a place of pleasant smells and sights and sounds. It was here that she learned Negro spirituals from Joe and cooking from Queenie, both of which accomplishments stood her in good stead in later years. Queenie had, for example, a way of stuffing a ham for baking. It was a fascinating process to behold, and one that took hours. Spices, bay, thyme, onion, clove, mustard, allspice, pepper, chopped and mixed and stirred together. 
a sharp pointed knife plunged deep into the juicy ham. The incision stuffed with the spicy mixture. Another plunge with the knife, another filling. Again and again and again, until the great ham had grown to twice its size. Then a heavy, clean white cloth, needle and coarse thread. Sewed up tight and plump in its jacket, the ham was immersed in a pot of water and boiled. Out when tender, the jacket removed into the oven with it. Basting and basting and basting from Queenie's long-handled spoon. The long, sharp knife again for cutting, and then the slices, juicy and scented with the stuffing of spices making a mosaic pattern against the pink of the meat. Many years later, Kim Ravenall, the actress, would serve at the famous little Sunday night suppers that she and her husband Kenneth Cameron were so fond of giving a dish that she called ham a la queenie. How does your cook do it? Her friends would say. Ethel Barrymore, or Kit Cornell, or Frank Crowninshield, or Charlie Town, or Woolcott. I'll bet it isn't real at all. It's painted on the plattern. Oh, it is not. It's a practical ham, stuffed with all kinds of devilment. The recipe is my mother's. She got it from an old southern cook named Queenie. Oh, listen, Kim, you're among friends. Your dear public is not present. You don't have to pretend any old southern aristocracy of Virginia bell stuff with us. Oh, pretend, you great oaf. I was born on a showboat on the Mississippi and proud of it. Everybody knows that. Mrs. Hawks, bustling into the showboat kitchen with her unerring gift for scenting an atmosphere of mellow enjoyment, anticipating it, would find Magnolia perched on a chair, both elbows on the table, her palms propping her chin as she regarded with round-eyed fascination Queenie's magic manipulations. Or perhaps Joe, the charming would be singing for her one of the Negro plantation songs, wistful with longing and pain, the folk songs of a wronged race, later to come into a blaze of popularity as spirituals. For some nautical reason, a broad beam, about six inches high and correspondingly wide, stretched across the kitchen floor from side to side, dividing the room. Through long use, Joe and Queenie had become accustomed to stepping over this obstruction. Queenie, ponderously, Joe with an effortless swing of his lank legs. On this, Magnolia used to sit, her arms hugging her knees, her great eyes and the little sallow, pointed face fixed attentively on Joe. The kitchen was very clean and shining and stuffy. Joe's legs were crossed one foot in its great, low, shapeless shoe, hooked in the chair rung, his banjo cradled in his lap. The once white parchment face of the instrument was now almost as black as Joe's, what with much strumming by work-stained fingers. Which one, Miss Magnolia? I got shoes, Magnolia would answer promptly. Joe would throw back his head, his somber eyes half shut. I got a shoes. You got a shoes. All of God's children got a shoes. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my shoes, gonna walk all over God's heaven. Heaven, heaven. Everybody's talking about heaven and going there. Heaven, heaven. Gonna shout all over God's heaven. The longing of a foot-sore, ragged, driven race, expressed in the tragically childlike terms of shoes, white robes, wings, and the wise and simple insight into hypocrisy. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Now which one? His fingers still picking the strings, ready at a word to slip into the opening chords of the next song. Go down, Moses. She liked this one, at once the most majestic and supplicating of all the Negro folk songs, because it always made her cry a little. Sometimes Queenie, 
busy at the stove or the kitchen table, joined in with her high, rich camp-meeting voice. Joe's voice was a reedy tenor, but soft and husky with the indescribable Negro vocal quality. Magnolia soon knew the tune and the words of every song in Joe's repertoire. Unconsciously, being an excellent mimic, she sang as Joe and Queenie sang, her head thrown slightly back, her eyes half-closed, one foot beating rhythmic time to the music's cadence. Her voice was true, though mediocre. Between Joe and Queenie flourished a fighting affection, deep, true, and lasting. There was some doubt as to the actual legal existence of their marriage, but the union was sound and normal enough. At each season's close, they left the showboat the richer by three hundred dollars, clean new calico for Queenie and proper jeans for Joe, shoes on their feet, hats on their heads, bundles in their arms. Each spring, they returned penniless, in rags, and slightly liquored. They had had a magnificent time. They did not drink again while the Cotton Blossom Kitchen was their home, but the next winter the program repeated itself. Captain Andy liked and trusted them. So, filled with the healthy ecstasy of song, the Negro man and woman and the white child would sit in deep contentment in the showboat kitchen. The sound of a door slammed. Quick, heavy footsteps... Three sets of nerves went taut. Parthy. Maggie Hawks, have you practiced today? Some. How much? Oh, half an hour. More. When? This morning. I didn't hear you. The sulky lower lip out. The high forehead wrinkled by a frown. Song flown. Peace gone. I did so. Joe, didn't you hear me practicing? I sure did, Miss Magnolia. You march right out of here, young lady, and practice another half hour. Do you think your father's made of money that I can throw fifty-cent pieces away on George for nothing? Now, you do your exercises fifteen minutes, and the maiden's prayer fifteen. Idea. Magnolia was actually having music lessons. George, the whistler and piano player, was her teacher, receiving fifty cents an hour for weekly instruction. Driven by her stern parent, she practiced an hour daily on the tinny old piano in the orchestra pit, a rebellious, skinny, pathetic little figure strumming painstakingly away in the great emptiness of the showboat auditorium. She must needs choose her time for practice when a rehearsal of the night's play was not in progress on the stage, or when the band was not struggling with the music of a new song and dance number. Incredibly enough, she actually learned something of the mechanics of music, if not of its technique. She had an excellent rhythm sense, and this was aided by none other than Joe, whose feeling for time and beat and measure and pitch was flawless. Queenie lumped his song gift in with his general shiftlessness. Born fifty years later, he might have known brief fame in some midnight review or club Alabama on Broadway. Certainly, Magnolia unwittingly learned more of real music from Black Joe and many another Negro wharf minstrel than she did from hours of the heavy-handed and unlyrical George that Mrs. Hawks could introduce into the indolent tenor of showboat life anything so methodical and humdrum as five-finger exercises done an hour daily was triumphant proof of her indomitable driving force. Life had miscast her in the role of wife and mother. She was born to be a madam chairman. Committees, votes, movements, drives, platforms, gavels, reports, they all showed in her stars. Cheated of these, she had to be content with such outlet of her enormous energies as the cotton blossom afforded. Parthy had never heard the word feminist and wouldn't have recognized it if she had. One spoke at that time not of women's rights, but of women's wrongs. On these, Parthenia often waxed tartly eloquent. 
Her housekeeping fervor was the natural result of her lack of a more impersonal safety valve. The cotton blossom shone like a Methodist Sunday household. Only Julie and Wendy, the model able pilot, defied her. She actually indulged in those most domestic of rights, canning and preserving on board the boat. Donning an all-enveloping gingham apron, she would set frenziedly to work on two bushels of peaches or seckle pears, baskets of tomatoes, pecks of apples, pickled pears, peach marmalade, grape gel in jars and pots and glasses, filled shelves and cupboards. Queenie found a great deal of satisfaction in the fact that, occasionally, owing to some culinary accident or to the unusual motion of the flat-bottom cotton blossom in the rough waters of an open bay, one of these jars was found smashed on the floor, its rich purple or amber contents mingling with splinters of glass. No one not even Parthy, ever dared connect Queenie with these quite explicable mishaps. Parthy was an expert needlewoman. She often assisted Julie or Ellie or Miss Means with their costumes. To see her stern, implacable face bent over a heap of frivolous stuffs while her industrious fingers swiftly sent the needle flashing through unvarying seams was to receive the shock that comes of beholding the incongruous. The enormity of it penetrated even her blunt sensibilities. If anybody'd ever told me that I'd live to see the day when I'd be sewing on costumes for show folks... Oh, run along, Parthy, you like it, Andy would say. But she never would admit that. Like it or lump it, what can I do? Married you for better or worse, didn't I? Her tone leaving no doubt as to the path down which that act had led her. Actually, she was having a rich, carefree, and varied life such as she had never dreamed of, and of which she secretly was enamored. Dwellers in this or that river town, loitering down at the landing to see what manner of sin and loose living went on in and about this showboat with its painted women and play-acting men, would be startled to hear sounds and sniff smells which were identical with those which might be issuing that very moment from their own smug and godly dwellings ashore." From out the open doors of the Cotton Blossom Floating Palace Theatre came the unmistakable and humdrum sounds of scales and five-finger exercises done painfully and unwillingly by rebellious childish hands. Ta-ta-ta! Ta! Ta-ta-ta! From below decks there floated up the mouth-watering savor of tomato ketchup, of boiling vinegar and spices, or the perfumed aroma of luscious fruits, seething in sugary kettles. Smells for all the world like somebody was doing up sweet pickles, one village matron to another. Well, I suppose they got to eat like other folks. Ta-ta-ta-ta, ta-ta-ta-ta. It was inevitable, however, that the ease and indolence of the life, as well as the daily contact with odd and unconventional characters, must leave some imprint on even so adamantine an exterior as Parthy's. Little by little, her school-teachery diction dropped from her. Slowly, her vowels began to slur. Her arns became ain'ts. Her crisp New England utterance took on something of the slovenly southern drawl. Her consonants were missing from the end of a word, here and there. True, she still bustled and nagged, managed and scolded, drove and reproached. She still had the power to make Andy jump with nervousness. Whether consciously or unconsciously, the influence of this virago was more definitely felt than that of any other one of the Cotton Blossom's company and crew. Of these, only Julie Dozier and Windy, the pilot, so-called because he almost never talked, actually triumphed over Mrs. Hawks. Julie's was a negative victory. She never voluntarily spoke to Parthy and had the power to aggravate that lady to the point of frenzy by remaining limp 
supine and idle when Parthy thought she should be most active, by raising her right eyebrow quizzically in response to a more than usually energetic tirade, by the habitual disorder of the tiny room which he shared with Steve, by the flagrant carelessness and untidiness of her own gaunt, graceful person. I declare, Hawks, what you keep that slatternly cat around this boat for beats me. Best actress in the whole caboodle, that's why. Something fine in little Captain Andy had seen and recognized the flame that might have glorified Julie had it not instead consumed her. That girl had the right backing. She'd make her mark, and not in any showboat either. I've been to New York. I've seen them down at Wallach's and Daly's and around. A slut. That's what she is. I had my way. She'd leave this boat bag and baggage. Well, this is one time you won't have your way, Mrs. Hawks, ma'am. She had not yet killed the spirit in Andy. Mark my words. You'll live to regret it. The way she looks out of those black eyes of hers gives me the creeps. What would you have the girl look out of? retorted Andy, not very brilliantly. Her ears? Julie could not but know of this antagonism towards her. Some perverse streak in her otherwise rich and gentle makeup caused her to find a sinister pleasure in arousing it. Windy's victory was more definitely dramatic, though his defensive method against Parthy's attacks resembled in sardonic quiet and poise Julie's own. Windy was accounted one of the most expert pilots on the Mississippi. He knew every coil and sinew and stripe of the yellow serpent. Riverman used his name as a synonym for magic with the pilot's wheel. Starless night or misty day, shoal water or deep, it was all one to Wendy. Though Andy's senior by more than fifteen years, the two had been friends for twenty. Captain Andy had enormous respect for his steersmanship, was impressed by his taciturnity, being himself so talkative and vivacious, enjoyed talking with him in the bright, quiet security of the pilot house. He was absolute czar of the Molly Abel and the Cotton Blossom, as befitted his high accomplishments. No one ever dreamed of opposing him, except Parthy. He was slovenly of person, careless of habit. These shortcomings Parthy undertook to correct early in her showboat career. She met with defeats so prompt, so complete, so crushing, as to cause her forever after to leave him unmolested. Windy had muddy boots. They were, it seemed, congenitally so. He would go ashore in mid-afternoon of a hot August day, when farmers from miles around had been praying for rain these weeks past, and return in a downpour, with half the muck and clay of the countryside clinging to his number eleven black square-toed elastic side-boots. A tall, emaciated, drooping old man, windy, whose enlarged knuckles and leathery palms were the result of almost half a century at the wheel. His pants were always grease-stained, his black string tie and grey shirt spattered with tobacco juice, his brown jersey frayed and ragged. Across his front he wore a fine anchor watch chain, or log chain, as it was called, and gleaming behind the long-flowing tobacco-splotch gray beard that reached almost to his waist, could be glimpsed a milkily pink pearl stud, like a star behind a dirty cloud bank. The jewel had been come by, doubtless, in payment of some waterfront saloon gambling debt. Surely its exquisite curves had once glowed upon fine and perfumed linen. It was against this taciturn and omnipotent conqueror of the rivers that Parthy raised the flag of battle, traipsing up and down this boat and the Molly Abel, spitting his filthy tobacco and leaving mud tracks like an elephant that's been in a bog. If I've had those steps leading up to the pilot house scrubbed once, I've had him scrubbed ten times this week, and now look at him. I won't have it, and so I tell you, 
Why can't he go up the side of the boat the way a pilot is supposed to do? What's that side ladder for, I'd like to know? He's supposed to go up it, not the steps. Now, Parthy, you can't rent a boat the way you would a kitchen back in Thebes. Wendy's no hired man. He's the best pilot on the rivers, and I'm lucky to have him. A hundred jobs better than this ready to jump at him if he so much as crooks a finger. He's pulled this tub through good many tight places where any other pilot had landed us high and dry on a sandbar. And don't you forget it. He's a dirty old man, and I won't have it. Muddying up my clean... Parthy was not one of your scolds who takes her grievances out in mere words. With her, to threaten was to act. That very morning, just before the Cotton Blossom was making a late departure from Greenville, where they had played the night before, to Senese side landing twelve miles below, this formidable woman, armed with hammer and nails, took advantage of Windy's temporary absence below decks to nail down the hatch above the steps leading to the pilot house. She was the kind of woman who can drive a nail straight. She drove ten of them, long and firm and deep. A pity that no one saw her. It was a sight worth seeing, this accomplished and indomitable virago in curl papers, driving nails with a sure and steady stroke. Below stairs, Windy, coming aboard from an early morning look-around, knocked the ashes out of his pipe, sank his great yellow fangs into a generous wedge of honest scrap and prepared to climb the stairs to the Cotton Blossom pilot house, there to manipulate wheel and cord that would convey his orders to Pete in the engine room. Up the stairs, leaving a mud spoor behind, one hand raised to lift the hatch, wondering, meanwhile, to find it closed. A mighty heave! A pounding with the great fist, another heave, then with the powerful old shoulder. Nailed, said Wendy, aloud to himself, mildly. Then, still mildly, the old hellcat. He spat then on the hatchway steps and clumped leisurely down again. He leaned over the boat rail, looking benignly down at the crowd of idlers gathered at the wharf to watch the showboat cast off. Then he crossed the deck again to where a capacious and carpet-seated easy chair held out its inviting arms. Into this he sank with a grunt of relaxation. From his pocket he took the pipe, so recently relinquished, filled it, tamped it, lighted it. From another pocket, he took a month-old copy of the New Orleans Times Democrat, turned to the column marked Shipping News, and settled down, apparently, for a long, quiet day with literature. Up came the anchor, in came the hawser, chains clanked, the sound of the gangplank drawn up, the hoarse shouts from land and water that always attend the departure of a riverboat. Throw her over there! Lift her! Hey, Pete! Give me a hand here! Oh, a little to the left. Other side! Hold on! Easy! The faces of the crowd ashore turned expectantly towards the boat. Everything ship-shape. Pete in the engine room. Captain Andy scampering for the Texas. Silence. No bells. No steam. No hoarse shouts of command. God almighty, where's Wendy? Wendy! Wendy! Windy lowers his shielding newspaper and mildly regards the capering captain and bewildered crew and startled company. He is wearing his silver-rimmed reading spectacles slightly askew on his biblical-looking hooked nose. Andy rushes up to him, all the bask in him, bubbling. God's sake, Windy! What's... Why don't you take her? We're going! Windy chewed rhythmically for a moment spat a long brown jet of juice, wiped his hairy mouth with the back of one gnarled hand. We ain't going, Cap'n Hawks, because she can't go till I give her the go-ahead. And I ain't give her the go-ahead. I'm the pilot of this here boat. But why? What the? What? The hatch is nailed down above the steps leading to the pilot house, Cap'n Andy. 
Till that hatchway's open, I don't climb up to no pilot house. Until I climb up to the pilot house, she don't get no go-ahead. And till I give her the go-ahead, she don't go. Not if we stay here alongside this landing till the cotton blossom rots. He looked round benignly and resumed his reading of the New Orleans Times Democrat. Profanity, frowned upon under Parthy's regime, now welled up in Andy and burst from him in spangled geysers. Words seethed to the surface and exploded like fireworks. Twenty-five years of river life had equipped him with a vocabulary rich, varied, and purple. He neglected neither the heavens above nor the earth beneath. Revolt and rage shook his wiry little frame. Years of henpecking, years of natural gaiety suppressed, years of mincing when he wished to stride, years of silence when he wished to sing, now were wiped away by the stream of undiluted rage that burst from Captain Andy Hawks. It was a torrent, a flood, a Mississippi of profanity in which hells and dams were mere drops in the mighty roaring mass. Uh, with your crowbars there, pry up the hatch. I'm captain of this boat, by God, and anybody, man or woman, who nails down that hatch again without my orders gets put off this boat wherever we are. And so I say. Did Parthenia and Hawks shrink and cower and pale under the blinding glare of his pyrotechnic profanity? Not that indomitable woman. The picture of outraged virtue in curl papers. She stood her ground like a Roman matron. She had even, when the flood broke, sent Magnolia indoors with a gesture meant to convey protection from the pollution of this verbal stream. Well, Captain Andy Hawks, a fine example you have set for your company and crew, I must say. You must say, you... Let me tell you, Mrs. Hawks, ma'am, the less you say, the better. And I repeat, anybody touches that hatchway again. Touch it? echoed Parthy in icy disdain. I wouldn't touch it, nor the pilot house, nor the pilot either, if you'll excuse my saying so, with a ten-foot pole, and swept away with as much dignity as a cotton-blossom early morning costume would permit, her head bloody but unbowed. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Showboat, this episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the eighth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast series. Other readings include Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.